This is an AMI podcast. This is an AMI podcast. Welcome to Voices of the Walrus on AMI Audio, where professional readers give voice to articles from Canada's best general interest magazine. I'm your host, Lloyd Robertson. Jonathan Townsend's family knew he was a danger. For almost a decade, his mother, Karen Upper, had been contacting family agencies in her area, and Townsend had several stints in Sault Ste. Marie's area hospital following meltdowns of ever-increasing intensity. But nobody listened until it was too late. John Devonish reads Warning Signs by Martin Patrickwin. Martin Patrickwin is a Montreal-based writer. He has contributed to the New York Times, the Globe and Mail, and iPolitics. I'm John Devonish. This is an article titled Warning Signs by Martin Patrickan from the Walrus Book of True Crime. George Townsend's phone rang as he was driving from Toronto to his home in Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario. It was August 8, 2013. The call was from Karen Upper, George's ex-wife. I think Johnny's had a meltdown, she said, referring to their son. She was at the hospital with him and found him distant and listless, which is usually how he behaved after an outburst of violence. She asked George to visit Jonathan's apartment to check if everything was okay. George, who then was about three and a half hours away, said he would look in when he got to town. Both Upper and her ex-husband were used to such episodes. Three years earlier, Jonathan had been identified as having Asperger's, now considered autism spectrum disorder. It was a diagnosis that increasingly puzzled his parents. There is no link between ASD and violence, but their son was prone to fits of anger that often resulted in broken computer screens, smashed doors, punched walls, and overturned tables. In March, Townsend had hit Upper with a chair, breaking her glasses. It was then, just four months shy of Townsend's 18th birthday, that she had finally kicked him out of the house. Upper continued to see him regularly, though, because she still believed she could help him. On the morning of August 8th, Upper had picked up Townsend at Algoma University, where he often went to use the free Wi-Fi, and had taken him to an orthodontist appointment. On the way, Townsend asked about getting help for his condition, He even volunteered to be committed, the first time he'd ever done so. After the orthodontist, they went straight to the Sault Ste. Marie Group Health Center, and Townsend was soon transferred to Sioux Area Hospital. Upper was relieved. After ten years, maybe he'd finally get the treatment he needed. She was worried, though, that he had trashed his apartment. At 7.25 that evening... George unlocked the door to Townsend's tiny ground-floor apartment in Sault Ste. Marie's East End. Taking a few steps in, he saw pools of blood near the door and in the front room. He saw a pair of knee-high white patent leather boots splattered with blood. Turning his head, he saw the body of a woman in the bathtub, crouched face down. She wore a patterned camisole, white shorts, striped green socks, and a string of pearls. Her feet blocked the drain, so the tub was filled with several inches of blood. "'Are you okay?' George said. He touched her wrist. There was no pulse, the skin cold and hard. George had feared this day would come. For years, he and Upper had tried to get help for Jonathan. When it didn't come, and as they watched Townsend get sicker, they warned social workers, counselors, doctors, and hospital administrators what he was capable of. George stood above the dead body in his son's bathtub. You finally did it. You finally did it, he said out loud. He left the apartment, locked the door, and dialed 911. Her name was Coralie Bonhomme. She was 42 years old. Hers was Sault Ste. Marie's sole homicide in 2013. Initial media reports about the murder said Bonhomme had no fixed address and that she and Townsend were acquaintances. Rumors spread. She was an escort who picked the wrong client. She was crazy. 
She was on drugs. Her death, while tragic, was a consequence of how she lived. Actually, Bonham was many things. A daughter who had been largely separated from her mother until her twenties. A model who had traveled the world. A mother who had her children taken away from her and spent much of her life trying to get them back. A woman who danced at Studio Ten, Sault Ste. Marie's lone strip club. She had a beautiful smile and a small, angular face framed by dark, curly hair. Some of her modeling pictures evoke a young Diana Ross, all boots, eyes, and attitude. The official story, the one entered into evidence at Townsend's first-degree murder trial, had Bonham and Townsend first meeting on the doorstep of his apartment. It was 5:30 a.m. on July 16th, four days after Townsend's birthday. Bonham was asleep by the communal mailboxes. Townsend said he practically tripped over her as he went for his mail. They spoke briefly, and he invited her in. Over the course of the next few weeks, they hung around, often walking the streets of Sault Ste. Marie together. They had slept in the same bed and showered together. Bonham was the first woman Townsend ever saw naked. Though separated by twenty-four years, they quickly bonded. He claimed he loved her. But the official story prompts more questions than answers. How did Bonham end up in front of his completely unremarkable apartment five kilometers from Studio Ten? Why did Townsend, who, like many diagnosed with ASD, craves order and routine, let this stranger into his apartment in the middle of the night? Why kill someone you profess to love? There's another important question: Could Bonham's death have been prevented? For almost a decade, Karen Upper had been contacting family agencies in her area, and Townsend had several stints in Sioux area hospital following meltdowns of ever increasing intensity. Upper often found herself calling the police as a last resort. Townsend, she was told, was either too young, too old, too smart, too sick, or not sick enough to qualify for help. He languished on waiting lists and was sent home from the hospital. What's more, the limited support he did receive vanished almost completely once he turned eighteen. None of this is particularly surprising. In 2013, the University of Toronto published a survey of 480 individuals with ASD. The survey called Ontario's approach to autism care uncoordinated, severely lacking limited services and supports. The report found that families are left to navigate a long list of government agencies that barely communicated with one another. They keep saying that Jonathan fell through the cracks. Upper says, "He didn't fall; he was pushed." Nor would addressing his ASD have been enough, though Townsend was diagnosed with that condition in 2011. It would take another year before he was diagnosed with conduct disorder. And a year before that, before his parents even learned about this second diagnosis, a behavioral and emotional disorder affecting children and teens, conduct disorder is often considered to be a precursor to antisocial personality disorder. Typical symptoms include chronic spates of violence, cruelty to people or animals, and a lack of remorse. In February 2013. Six months before Bonham's murder, a psychiatrist who had examined Townsend wrote a report warning Townsend's family to take extreme precautions. About a month later, after Townsend attacked his mother with a chair, his parents tried again to have him institutionalized. Sioux Area Hospital discharged him less than four hours after the police brought him in. George remembers telling his ex-wife at the time, "They aren't going to take this seriously." Until he actually kills somebody, a correctional officer opens a heavy door, and Jonathan Townsend walks into the booth. Sitting down, he picks up the receiver and wipes off the earpiece with the collar of his orange prison jumpsuit. "Hello," he says. "I say hello back." From August eleventh, twenty thirteen, when he was arrested at Sioux Area Hospital. 
until just after he was sentenced for murder in June 2017. Townsend was housed at the Algoma Treatment and Remand Center, a low-slung building on the northern outskirts of Sault Ste. Marie. While in jail, he's been found guilty of uttering threats to a prison guard and for sending a threatening letter to Thomas Armstrong, the Sault Ste. Marie sergeant detective who investigated Bonhomme's murder. He's also written two unpublished sci-fi novels. A couple years ago, he became frustrated and stabbed himself in the neck with a pencil. He has spent much of his time in solitary confinement, usually at his own request. It's among the first things I ask him. What was it like to live in solitary for more than three years? Um, I don't know. I guess it was just life. It's not that big a change, really, he says. It would be different if I'd been going to parties when I wasn't in jail, but mostly I went to school. Besides such prior obligations, I'd stay locked in a dark room with no lights. In the months I spent researching Townsend's story, I came to realize there were two versions of him. One was a violent, temperamental, and narcissistic monster who assaulted his mother and killed a woman in cold blood. The other was a shy kid who downplayed three and a half years in solitary confinement and who has a tendency to speak softly and haltingly, the ends of his sentences bending upwards so that they sound like questions. I read about the former, but only ever saw the latter. Townsend was George and Upper's third child. From the start, he was rambunctious, to the point of being hyperactive. The parents figured it was part of raising a boy. By 2005... As Townsend was about to turn 11, he started throwing and breaking things. He'd push doors so violently that they'd snap off their hinges. He smashed the doorknob to his sister's room with an iron because she'd locked herself in to get away from him. His behavior escalated when his parents divorced. He'd punch walls and destroy toys, his anger rising like a diabetic spike, disappearing as quickly as it had come. Confronted with his behavior, he'd look at his mother, confused. He didn't understand what he'd done, or why he'd done it. In one case, furious after being told to turn off his GameCube, he broke apart the toy ramp his mother had just set up. After he calmed down, he didn't remember tearing it apart. We discovered that in his rage, he is not even aware of his actions, Upper wrote in her diary at the time. Upper began to see a pattern in Townsend's meltdowns. He would be relatively well-behaved at school, only to lose it once he got home. These meltdowns, in which Upper and her daughters would become the de facto targets of Townsend's rage, were distressing for another reason. It was nearly impossible for Upper to convince teachers, counselors, and psychiatrists that there was anything wrong with her son. Chloe Halpenny, got to know Townsend at Cora Collegiate and Vocational School, where they attended high school. She remembers a short kid with long hair. Other students called him Johnny Pants because he kept his pants hiked up. They'd talk to him, then laugh at his response, just to show how different he was. Even worse, Halpenny says, because of his condition, Townsend himself never clued in to how he was the butt of their jokes. It bothered me to see that happening. And I thought maybe he was someone who needed someone to sit with at lunch, Halpenny says. So she hung out with him. He showed her a video game he'd worked on. They saw the movie Super 8 together. They messaged over Facebook. In 2010, as Townsend was finishing grade 9, his mother received a call from a guidance counselor at the school. I think Jonathan has Asperger's, the counselor said. Individuals with Asperger's, Upper was told, typically have some of the symptoms associated with autism, including repetitive behaviors and difficulty reading facial expressions and other social cues. Yet they don't have delays in speech or cognitive development. For a parent, learning that their child has a developmental disorder can be a painful discovery.
Upper nearly broke into tears of joy. Her son would finally get the help he needed. Townsend was officially diagnosed with Asperger's by a child psychologist the following year, when he was in grade 10. At home, Townsend's meltdowns were becoming more violent. He'd spend hours on online forums dedicated to anime. He hated being disagreed with online or off. When it happened, he'd smash something. His laptop was often the first victim. Other times, he'd throw things at his sisters and at his mother. She was working at Sears while trying to go to various meetings with Community Living Algoma, CLA, an organization designed to help guide autistic youth through the school system, and Algoma Family Services, AFS, which offered specialized programs dealing with mental health. Neither agency, Upper claims, had much experience with Asperger's. Both agencies declined to comment. One CLA caseworker told her that she was learning about the disorder by watching The Big Bang Theory, a sitcom about a group of nerdy oddballs living in Pasadena, California. This also happened to be Townsend's favorite show. As Townsend's behavior got worse, his mother was forced into retreat. At one point, he set fire to the carpet in her room. At times, I was scared of him. Yeah, Upper says. Not afraid of Johnny, but of the mental illness that they didn't see and they wouldn't help with. It was becoming clearer that the Asperger's diagnosis alone didn't explain his violent outbursts. In 2016, an article in the Harvard Review of Psychiatry reviewed the literature on ASD and violence published from 1943 to 2014. It found that while there is no conclusive evidence that individuals with ASD are more violent than those without, other associated mental health disorders could be a trigger. I knew he was getting sicker and sicker and that there was more than just Asperger's, Upper said. In August 2011, Townsend won an award for a video game he had created, earning him a $2,500 scholarship to Algoma University as well as a visit to the Montreal offices of the gaming company Ubisoft. Shortly after he left for Montreal, Townsend's sister Katie heard Keisha, her cat, meowing in distress from somewhere in the house. She followed the noise to the freezer in the basement. Opening the door, she saw a brown box wrapped in green tape. Keisha was inside. Katie figured the cat had been in the freezer for a couple hours. Katie phoned her mother and told her what she'd found. Upper realized how serious this was. She knew immediately that Townsend was responsible and was worried about how he might react if he were to come home and find the cat still alive. Since Upper was out of town at the time, she called Townsend's father and devised a plan. George would pick Townsend up from the airport and bring him to a hotel for the night. The following Monday, Townsend had an appointment with his family doctor, in part to discuss the episode with the cat. Upper, who was back in Sault Ste. Marie at that point, picked Townsend up from the hospital. As they drove home, she could hear Townsend muttering in the back seat. I'm a complete failure. It didn't work. It was supposed to be practice, Upper heard him say. She looked in the rearview mirror. Townsend was sitting behind her. Practice for what, she asked. To kill you, he said. George Townsend is a computer science professor at Algoma University. I spoke to him for a few hours in his office, which he shares with his wife, also a computer science professor, in the basement of Algoma's main building. His bald pate, big beard and oval glasses gave him an owlish look, is considered monotone as largely bereft of emotion, regardless of the subject. After Townsend threatened his mother's life in the car following the cat incident, he was admitted to the psych ward at Sioux Area Hospital and was then transferred to North Bay Regional Health Center's campus in Sudbury. 
Upper was worried for her life and the well-being of her son. The doctors thought it was a big misunderstanding. In fact, George remembers Townsend's doctors laughing at how Townsend had put the family cat in the freezer. There was a teleconference, George says. The doctors were talking about what they'd decided, and one of them was kind of joking about it, saying there's no homicidal plot or something. They said, we think Johnny just got mad at the cat because the cat scratched him. After about a month, Townsend was discharged and sent home. He spent hours on end on his computer, hardly sleeping, his mother too afraid of the consequences if she asked him to go to bed. She called the police to the house after one of his meltdowns. When the officers arrived, Upper says they couldn't believe she couldn't get Townsend into counseling. One of the cops asked his boss if he could take time out of his schedule the next day, and he and I went to talk to a community-living Algoma counselor. He spent two hours with her and got nowhere. In the spring of 2012, Sault Ste. Marie police arrested Townsend after he attempted to poison a classmate. He had dissolved 17 tablets of clonidine, a medication used to treat anxiety, in her coffee. He later claimed the classmate was the daughter of the devil and that the poisoning was a test because the devil would never let his daughter die. As a result of the incident, Townsend was admitted to the psychiatric ward at Sioux Area Hospital, where he spent nearly a month. Anna Rogers, an adult psychiatrist at the hospital, examined him. Jonathan is now presented as a risk to others, she wrote in a report dated April 3, 2012. Because she wasn't a child psychiatrist, Rogers referred Townsend to Pablo Sanhueza, a psychiatrist at North Bay Regional Health Center. Sanhueza's resulting three reports, written in the 18 months before Bonham's murder, spell out the extent to which Townsend was a danger to others. Sanhueza describes a teenager with a very cold frame of mind, whose propensity to veer from social withdrawal to violence had created a climate of fear for other members of his family. Moreover, his subsequent explanations, according to Sanhuesa's report, reveal no insight into the wrongness of his actions. He further affirms that by ignoring or minimizing Townsend's symptoms, the system effectively enabled his disorders. Though Townsend's social awkwardness and idiosyncratic thought processes were classic hallmarks of ASD, Asperger is not a sufficient explanation for his violent behavior, cruelty, and criminal offenses, Sanhueza wrote. Something else had grown out of Townsend's illness, Sanhueza believed. Townsend's anger, left unchecked for so long, had metastasized into barely containable rage. I am left with the impression that his antisocial trend is relatively new and has seriously worsened in the course of the last few years, Sanhueza wrote. Sanhueza diagnosed Townsend with conduct disorder and concluded his October 2012 report with a prophetic flourish. Every public service has, in a way, turned its back on his needs and the needs of the family. In his final report from March 2013, Sanhueza wrote, No treatment or clinical intervention could modify Townsend's behavior and he represents a serious and predictable imminent danger to the physical integrity of the family. Sanhueza later told Upper that it was inappropriate for Townsend to live in the family home. When Upper explained that Townsend had nowhere to go, Sanhueza told her and her daughters to sleep with their doors locked and their cell phones on them at all times. Townsend's psychiatric reports became part of his patient record, meaning they would have been accessible to any physician in his circle of care. Read together, they make it difficult to understand how the various agencies tasked with Townsend's treatment let him stay in the family home, let alone move out into his own apartment to live unsupervised. 
Yet Sanhuese's reports disappeared into the bureaucratic ether. Neither the CLA nor AFS appear to have been aware of their contents. Nor did Sioux Area Hospital staff make notes of Sanhuese's findings or Townsend's dual diagnosis in Townsend's intake report on March 4, 2013, after he'd attacked his mother with a chair. Staff, in fact, let him go, even though he was brought in by police, threw a table against the wall while under observation, and his mother said she was too scared to be in the same room with him. Townsend himself only learned of his dual diagnosis in 2014, while he was in jail, awaiting trial for Bonham's murder. It took a lawyer and several months for George Townsend to get his hands on the reports. He finally received them in May 2013, by which time Jonathan had been kicked out of his mother's house. Jonathan was now on his own, and his parents had even less power over him than they did before. A few hours before she was murdered, Bonham posted a video on Google+, entitled A Beautiful Life. It shows her standing on a Georgian Bay beach in pearls and cowboy boots, talking to the camera for eight minutes about her life. The beach monologue, as she called it, had been filmed in May, and Bjorn Mueller, her boyfriend of only a few months with a family cottage in the area, can be seen in the reflection of her sunglasses. At one point, Mueller freezes the camera on her. Blue sky and wind-blown hair frame her smiling face. Bonhomme was born in 1970 to unmarried parents, a social stigma in rural Quebec. Her maternal grandparents had refused to even recognize her existence, much less visit her. After three years, her mother, Lise Bilodeau, made the difficult decision to hand the child over to Bonhomme's father, who lived in the United States. Bilodeau eventually lost touch with her daughter. Nineteen years later, Bonhomme looked her mother up in the phone book. We have a lot to speak about, she said. But they could hardly have a conversation. Bilodeau didn't speak English. Her daughter, raised in the United States, didn't speak French. They exchanged letters they couldn't read, and their phone conversations were well-meaning, but given the language divide, fraught. In the following years, Bonhomme wrote more letters, dozens of them, often undated, from far-flung places. They are written in about as many handwriting styles, printed, cursive, block letters, frenzied scribbles, and girlish twirls. Those letters tell the story of an adult life marked by chaos and sorrow. Bonhomme had her four children taken from her because of mental instability. In 1994, two years after moving to London, England, for a modeling gig, she gave birth to her first child, Ryan. And in 2003, while living in Scotland, she gave birth to a boy named Christopher. The names of Bonhomme's children have been changed. Both Ryan and Christopher were taken away from her by UK authorities soon after they were born. Scottish officials also removed her third child, Layla, born in 2005. The following year, the sheriff overruled the original order and granted Bonhomme custody of Layla. In 2008, she was detained in Scotland for overstaying her visa and eventually deported back to Canada. Her daughter Layla, then nearly three years old, arrived separately from her mother and was taken into care by Child Protection Services in British Columbia. Bonhomme later moved to Ottawa and gave birth to another child, Merida, on May 28, 2010. Immediately after the birth, doctors committed Bonhomme to the hospital for 72 hours. She tried to flee the hospital with the placenta still attached. Merida was subsequently taken from her as well. The last several months of Bonham's life were largely dedicated to retrieving paperwork from Child Protection Services in B.C. and Ontario. Bonham was convinced that within those pages there was proof of how the social workers, 
lawyers, judges, and law enforcement officers involved in her cases had consistently lied about her mental state and parenting abilities. The documents, which she wrapped in a garbage bag and carried with her everywhere, were going to get her kids back and make those who did her wrong face justice. They are going to be arrested, she told Mueller on the beach. In truth, the file spells out in clinical language the depth of her mental illness and the lengths she went to either hide it or to deny its existence. Volatile, aggressive paranoia, delusional thoughts, extreme accusations, racist, homophobic comments, and repeated erratic behaviors against authorities is how Bonham's interactions with social workers were characterized in a 2010 judgment making Merida a crown ward for adoption purposes. A social worker in charge of Bonham's case put it this way, Severe mental health concerns with delusions, hallucinations. She is highly intelligent and can present well. Over the years, Bonham filled her Facebook page with meandering thoughts and idle threats, usually written in capital letters. Social workers and judges assigned to her case were often targets of her rage. She posted videos on YouTube that were similar to her Facebook posts. They lurched from wild accusations to heartfelt, whispered messages to her children, who she was convinced were watching. Ryan, Christopher, Layla, Merida, and she would be together again, she said. As most children who are taken away illegally or falsely adopted, they tend to come back to the nest, she said, in one of the last YouTube videos she made. For weeks during the summer they met, Bonhomme would shuttle between Georgian Bay and her new job at Studio 10, a 1,200-kilometer round trip. On August 5th, after another weekend together, Mueller put Bonhomme on a bus to Sault Ste. Marie for the last time. She packed a wheeled suitcase full of makeup, clothes, and a pair of knee-high white patent leather boots, along with her case file from an Ontario court. When Bonham didn't respond to emails or texts in the following days, Mueller figured she'd found someone else or gotten busted for something stupid. She'll contact me eventually, he thought. Weeks went by without a word from her. When he didn't hear anything on September 11th, her birthday, Mueller googled her name and read about the murder. He wrote a three-page letter to Lise Bilodeau, explaining who he was and how he'd met her daughter. He ended it with the following line, the irony. She wanted nothing better than to be with her stolen children. She got murdered by a child. In April 2013, George found Townsend an apartment in Sault Ste. Marie's East End. His parents paid the $350 monthly rent and brought over groceries every week. Child and Community Resources, CCR, sent over an Applied Behavior Analysis, ABA, counselor to help Townsend improve his communication and social skills. Though he had exhibited repeated instances of dangerous and threatening behavior and had been kicked out from his mother's house after he'd assaulted her, the ABA counselor, according to Upper, chose to concentrate on employment skills, something that irks her to this day. He didn't need employment skills, she says. Employment was a pipe dream. Johnny needed treatment. CCR Executive Director Sherry Fournier refused to comment on Townsend's case, citing confidentiality restrictions. Still, Upper tried to look at things positively. Townsend always wanted to be independent, and he was nearly 18 anyway. Maybe having his own apartment would force him to adapt to the world. Instead, Townsend spent much of the time in the apartment with the lights off, often sitting with his laptop near one of the windows where he could best pick up Wi-Fi. On May 6th, Townsend met someone who used the screen name DarkWolfGirl35 on an online forum. They exchanged the basics. Townsend, known as ZBPets, was a 17-year-old who had just moved out of his mother's place. She was a 12-year-old girl who lived with her grandmother 
in a small Indiana town. She can't be identified due to a publication ban. Her screen name has been changed. Though they'd never met in person and didn't yet know each other's real names, they declared themselves to be dating within a few days. Over the next three months, ZB Pets and Dark Wolf Girl 35 exchanged 10,563 messages over Skype Instant Messenger. On July 16th, Townsend described how, unable to sleep, he had gone to check his mail at 5.30 a.m., and there had been a woman asleep in the entrance of his apartment building. She had told him she was from out of town, dancing at Studio 10. They'd messed up her paycheck, and she couldn't get a hotel room. That night, he claims, they had slept in the same bed. Over the next few days, Dark Wolf Girl 35 sounded more and more jealous of the stripper, as Zebi Pets referred to Bonhomme. Zebi Pets. Oh, God, did you think I was going to dump you for her? Dark Wolf Girl 35. Yeah. I-G-T-G. I've got to go. Zebi Pets. I would never do that. A few days later, Bonham and Townsend walked to the Churchill Plaza shopping center near his apartment. At some point, a dog jumped on Bonham, scratching her leg. In Townsend's words, Bonham freaked out at the owner, a young boy screaming that she needed to go to the hospital and that the dog needed to be put down. She also berated Townsend for siding with the kid. That night, he professed his disgust with Bonham's behavior to Dark Wolf Girl 35. Zebi Pets, would it be so wrong if I apologized, made up with her, invited her back to my house, and then killed her? Townsend and his online girlfriend had discussed murder before. He often expressed his desire to kill someone. Townsend and his online girlfriend had discussed murder before. He often expressed his desire to kill someone. I want to watch the life fade from somebody's eyes, he once told her. Though this marked the first time either of them had mentioned a specific target. According to her court testimony, Dark Wolf Girl 35 believed Townsend was joking about his threats. I thought that he wasn't really going to do it, she said. On August 1st, Townsend and Dark Wolf Girl 35 planned Bonham's murder. Townsend decided on poisoning though there was the matter of the body. Zebi Pets, so do you think my plan will work? Dark Wolf Girl 35, mm-hmm. Zebi Pets, the thing is, what about the bones? Dark Wolf Girl 35, cut her open, get her bones out fully. Zebi Pets, and then what? Dark Wolf Girl 35, then grind her. A few days later, Zebi Pets, and what if I get caught and go to jail? Dark Wolf Girl 35. I'd wait. On August 1st, Bonham posted a picture of the court clerk's desk on Google Plus as she picked up her case file from an Ottawa courthouse. That same day, Townsend searched Walmart.com for manual meat grinder. The next day, he became despondent, convinced that Bonham wasn't coming back. He had the poison ready and everything, but Bonhomme did return to Sault Ste. Marie to dance at Studio 10. The night of August 7th was particularly difficult. She nearly came to blows with another dancer backstage. I wish I had never come here, she texted Townsend at 10.20 p.m. Still, Bonhomme seemed happy. Earlier that day, She'd managed to post the video, A Beautiful Life, on Google+. Finally, her message would get out to her children, scattered across two continents, virtual prisoners of their adoptive families. All five of them would be together soon enough. Mueller, her boyfriend, had already seen the video online. Congrats. You did it. You should be feeling great. You did it all yourself, and it works. Mueller texted her at 11.10 p.m. Bonham finished her shift and left Studio 10 in a taxi, 
arriving at Townsend's with a Tim Hortons sandwich and a coffee. I'm here, she texted him from the lobby at 1.48 a.m. Townsend was online with Dark Wolf Girl 35 at the time. ZB Pets. It's probably now or never. I'd do it tonight, or I'd probably never get another chance. What should I do? Dark Wolf Girl 35. Do it tonight. Bonhomme came into the apartment and promptly told Townsend that she was leaving the next day. Refusing to eat the potatoes he'd prepared for her, she instead ate the sandwich, drank her coffee, and then went to bed, falling asleep within minutes. Townsend stripped down to his boxers, brushed his teeth, and climbed into bed next to Bonhomme, who was sleeping on her side, with a knife in his right hand. At about 2.20 a.m., he brought it down on her neck, hard enough to pierce through it, severing the right carotid artery and both jugular veins. Townsend then bolted to the other side of the room. Blood from Bonhomme's neck soaked the mattress. Townsend told her to get into the bathtub, which she did. She looked at the knife in his hand. He backed out of the bathroom and threw it away. He then went back in and put a hand on the wound. Bonhomme slumped down in the bathtub. What should I do, he asked. Ambulance, Bonhomme managed. You could have lived if you had only eaten the potatoes, he said. She died as Townsend reached for a towel to stanch the bleeding. He got into the tub with her body and turned on the shower. He thought maybe he could bring her back to life if he did so, he later testified. He dressed, gathered his laptop, and left the apartment for a nearby Tim Hortons, where he messaged Dark Wolf Girl 35. He told her, The stripper is dead. There's evidence everywhere. I can never go back to the apartment. There would be no cleanup, no disposing of her body. At he was going to get caught. He googled, Sentence for first-degree murder, Canada. At 7.45 a.m., he wrote to Dark Wolf Girl 35 for the last time. ZB Pets. God, nothing matters anymore. Halpenny, Townsend's classmate, read the news reports about the murder and promptly took to Facebook. It bothers me to read comments on websites like Facebook and Sue Today regarding the incident. John is not evil, he is not malicious, and he is not villainous, she continued. What John is, is very, very sick. Not every parent is lucky enough to be blessed with a child who is mentally capable of understanding emotions and the difference between morally right and wrong. I know for a fact that John's parents had tried to find him help for a long time, but sometimes this isn't always enough. Certainly, Jonathan Townsend's family wasn't alone in their suffering. In August 2016, three years almost to the day of Bonham's murder, Ontario's Ombudsman's Office published Nowhere to Turn, a report on the province's adult developmental disabilities services. It sketches a picture of a system in deep disarray, in which afflicted families are doubly victimized, first by their situation and then by the very resources designed to help them. What we found was a fragmented, confusing, and complex assortment of hundreds of community agencies and local processes impossible for many individuals with developmental disabilities and their families to navigate. It reads, We also received multiple complaints about families held hostage in the home, victims of violence at the hands of loved ones who urgently require more intensive services and supports. In part because of the Ombudsman's report, Ontario's Ministry of Children and Youth Services revamped the Ontario Autism Program. Families will soon have a single access point to all of the province's services and will play an active role in the treatment of their children. The ministry announced these changes on June 8, 2017, the day Jonathan Townsend was sentenced to life in prison for the murder of Coralie Bonhomme. Upper believes that if these changes had been implemented when Townsend needed help, 
perhaps counselors would have spent enough time with him to realize that he didn't just have ASD. He was given, she believes, the convenient diagnosis of high-functioning Asperger's, which meant doctors didn't take his family seriously when they warned he was trying to kill them. As she often does, Upper tries to put a positive spin on Townsend's jail time. At least he'll get a roof over his head, three square meals a day, and access to the therapy he could never get on the outside. You can't blame one person. There are people all along that should have lost their jobs. But the big picture is the system, she says. The whole system is broken. Lise Bilodeau, Bonhomme's mother, arrived in Sault Ste. Marie on the third day of Townsend's trial after an 18-hour bus ride from Montreal. When Townsend came into the court that morning, dressed in a too-big white shirt and two long gray slacks, it marked the first time she'd laid eyes on him. She couldn't believe how young he looked. She noticed, too, how he drank from his water glass with two hands, as a child might. Bilodeau was determined to come to Sault Ste. Marie for some of the trial, in part for closure, in part out of motherly duty, in part as a final service for a child she hardly knew. Not being able to raise Bonhomme in her formative years, and knowing her mostly through frantic late-night phone calls and letters she could hardly read are some of Bilodeau's biggest regrets. She'd always attributed her daughter's behavior to drugs. In 2009, not long before Bonhomme arrived in Vancouver from Scotland, Bilodeau spoke to Bonhomme's psychiatrist, who said her daughter was a regular user of crystal meth. Should she continue at this pace, the psychiatrist told Bilodeau, Bonhomme would live no longer than ten years. If she had been addicted then, she was clean when she died. There were no traces of drugs, illegal or otherwise, in her system, according to the coroner's investigation. Bilodeau didn't get any closure from seeing Townsend or from hearing the details of her daughter's murder. She left before Townsend testified. But from what she read in the papers, she doesn't think it would have enlightened her any further. Instead, there were just more questions. Why was Bonhomme so set on returning to Sault Ste. Marie? If she didn't have money, why didn't she just phone Bjorn Mueller, a man of significant means who obviously adored her, to put her up in a hotel? Finally, how did Bonhomme end up in front of Townsend's utterly nondescript apartment building, so far from Studio 10? There are any number of apartments near the club, reachable by foot, or, at the very least, a much shorter cab ride away. On July 16th, the same day Townsend found her sleeping in the lobby of his apartment building, Bonham wrote on her Google Plus account that she was visiting relatives while here. Though Bilodeau said neither her family nor that of Bonham's father have any relatives in Sault Ste. Marie. Following a thorough forensic examination of Townsend's computer, the Sault Ste. Marie Police Service found no record of communication between Townsend and Bonhomme prior to the day they met. Beyond the occasional shower, Bonhomme was meticulous about keeping their relationship businesslike, paying him $40 for every night she stayed at his apartment. Detective Thomas Armstrong, the investigating officer in the case, coaxed a confession out of Townsend two days after Bonham's murder and took the lead in the ensuing investigation. Yet even he could never figure out how she ended up at Townsend's apartment building. It was a chance meeting, and he invited her in for a place to stay, Armstrong told me. But if the system had worked, Townsend wouldn't have been there either. Townsend pleaded not guilty to the charge of first-degree murder and testified in his own defense. He said the violent messages between him and Dark Wolf Girl 35 were bluster, written in part because he believed they reflected how a psychopath would act. He also wrote them, he said, to convince his online girlfriend that he wasn't falling for Bonhomme. 
When Bonhomme told him she was leaving, he brought the knife to bed with the intention of killing himself, but he chickened out and killed her instead. He said this as though it made all the sense in the world. It took the jury less than an hour to find him guilty. Two months later, Superior Court Justice Michael Varpio sentenced Townsend to life in prison and asked if Townsend had anything to say. I want to apologize for what happened, he said. Not sure if I should say more or not. I'll leave it at that then. He was led out of court as he had come in, in handcuffs with a police officer at his side. Townsend is currently appealing his conviction. After the verdict, Sault Ste. Marie police sent Billado the package of documents that Bonhomme carried around. For the second time in her life, Billado was trying to move on from the memory of her youngest child, only to have reality catch up with her. The police also sent a box containing a few of Bonhomme's personal items retrieved from the crime scene. They included her blood-stained strand of pearls, wrapped in an evidence bag. That was an article titled Warning Signs by Martin Patrickin from the Walrus Book of True Crime. I'm John Devenish. You've been listening to Voices of the Walrus on AMI-audio, produced by Don Dickinson, audio engineering by Sam Robinson and Bill Shackleton. The manager of AMI-audio is Andy Frank, and I'm your host, Lloyd Robertson. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider giving us a rating and review and subscribe for more. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca. I'm Margaret Shepard of the AMI podcast, Tripping On Air. Every month, my co-host Alex Hajar and I spill the tea on what it's really like to live with MS. Watch Tripping On Air on YouTube or download wherever you get your pods.